0: We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust. There's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which, I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world, I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and His grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the King of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so, all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so, we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life.
1: well hey good morning,
0: good morning.
1: So there's your first sermon right there if the if a picture's worth a thousand words then a video's like ten thousand words right and we can just let's, just let's just pray and we'll go home okay just <laughs> just kidding welcome everybody great to have you here at faith community church we're continuing a teaching series in the book of Hebrews called He is Greater, and today we're talking about the blood of Jesus. We're even going to be going to use the word atonement together this morning, I just thought that that video would be a great way to set the table for our time together this morning. Before we get to our scripture reading though, I just need to say a quick word of thank you to everyone involved in the Casas Por Cristo mission trip that the youth did last week, building a house together in three days to everyone who gave, everyone who was praying, and everyone who went, thank you so much. Uh, I I can't tell you as a dad uh, how great it is to pick up the phone at the end of the trip and hear your 14-year-old say, this was awesome. So this was a trip that just did everything that you want a trip like this to do, and thank you. Uh, for praying for them and for giving. We've got a bunch of kids headed to the boundary or near the boundary waters soon, so be praying for them. We had Yancy here this this Wednesday leading little kids in worship as well. Uh, So thank you. For everyone who gives, everyone who tithes here and prays and is part of that, uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you for that. Let's jump into our scripture reading this morning. We're continuing in a New Testament letter called Hebrews. So let's turn there together. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. uh, But you can always borrow one from under the chairs in front of you. We'll be on page 1006 this morning. It would be great if you could have something on your phone or in front of you because we're going to move around the page a little bit today. Page 1006. For those who are just joining us for the first time, maybe a special welcome to you. We're really honored to have you with us. And here's just kind of what's going on so you can follow along. Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to hold fast to Jesus. And in this section of the letter, the author is just contrasting the shadows and signs that were given in the Old Testament with the substance that came in the New Testament with Jesus. And here's an analogy for understanding this whole part of the letter to the Hebrews. He's kind of saying, turning away from Jesus and going back to external, earthly, temporary uh, human religion is kind of like driving halfway across the country to the Grand Canyon and getting, you know, five miles away and you see a sign that says Grand Canyon, five miles And you get so excited, and kids, get out of the car. We made it. We're here. And everybody piles out of the car, and you park the RV under the sign, and you, oh, oh, look at the sign. Look at those colors. Look at the shape. Kids, isn't this amazing? Meanwhile, just over the next rise is like the real thing that you are completely missing out on. That's what's going on in this section of Hebrews. And in chapter 9, verse 11, where we're going to start, He's been talking about the tabernacle, and he says this. Verse 11, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant this is yeah this is the blood of the covenant that god commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins I want you to keep your finger there, and I just, I want to read a little from Matthew chapter 26 as well. This is Matthew 26, verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an old hymn whose opening lines go like this. It's a pretty famous hymn. I grew up singing this. Maybe some of you did as well. But the opening lines go like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's a quite famous hymn, also a rather gruesome mental image if you slow down to think about what you're singing. Uh, But let's do that right now. We're going to do a group mental exercise together. Is everyone ready? Is your brain on? All right. Well, ten of you. This, uh, this imagery, there's a, there's a fountain, okay, so far so good, right? Filled with blood, drawn from Jesus' veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That imagery comes from the scriptures like the one we kind of heard about in the video there just a minute ago where blood was sprinkled on altars and walls and utensils and the Ark of the Covenant and on the people. And it comes from scriptures like Hebrews chapter 9, which we just read. Blood was mentioned 10 times in 11 verses in our scripture reading today. So the blood of Jesus is the theme of what we read together today. And all of that kind of came together to inspire this hymn, this image of a fountain overflowing with the blood of Jesus. Jesus and sinners are exhorted to be plunged into it to wash away their stain. There's kind of an interesting story about that hymn. The author is was an English poet by the name of William Cooper. He wrote it around 1770, somewhere around there. Cooper did not grow up in a Christian home. He grew up in a religious home, but reached adulthood not really knowing anything about what we're talking about here today. And all of his adult life, starting when he was 21... Uh, Cooper dealt with debilitating bouts of depression. Uh, He would spend days sometimes unable to get himself out of bed. He would sit and stare out of the window without eating, without bathing, without taking care of himself. He made several attempts to take his own life. And he was just in and out of work and and all kinds of things. Well, when he was 32, Cooper was committed to an insane asylum, St. Alban's Uh, Insane Asylum, where the doctor, in the providence of God, the doctor who cared for the patients there was a really warm, godly Christian man who began speaking to William Cooper about the love of Jesus. And uh, Cooper just was unable to believe that. He'd wrestled his whole life with a sense of worthlessness and, and meaninglessness. And he just could not bring himself to believe that God would love him or care about him. One day, about six months after uh, he entered the asylum, he found a Bible sitting on a bench outside and he began reading it. And it was as he was reading about the blood of Jesus that suddenly everything he'd been hearing made sense to him and it transformed his life. So you can see maybe why that poet would give you a hymn about a fountain filled with the blood of Jesus that washes away our stains. There are two things that have to become real to every heart if you're going to really grow up in love and knowing Jesus. One is the holiness and the majesty and the power and the fear of God and the other is his love and patience and grace. And if, you, if you're missing either one of those from your life, your, your spiritual life is gonna experience some serious malformation. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the blood of Jesus, reflecting on the blood of Jesus like we're gonna do now, is a key to understanding those two things. So let's just take a look at our scripture reading today. I want to begin in verse 15, and we're really going to spend most of our time in verse 15. Verse 15 assigns to Jesus yet another title that comes from the Old Testament, okay? So he's been been given so many titles in Hebrews. Here's another one. It says that he is the mediator of a new covenant, the mediator of a new covenant there are, you know some of the titles given to Jesus priest mediator intercessor these are all in hebrews and they're all really closely related because all three of those the priest the mediator the intercessor stand between people and God in some sense but they all do it in a slightly different way and it's worth taking the time to reflect on the differences because hebrews wants you to see all these different aspects of Jesus character so a priest makes relationship with God possible by off by paying for sin an intercessor makes your relationship with God continuing because he stands in the presence of God speaking on your behalf well a mediator plays the role of bringing two parties together in the first place and so now we see this this is part of what Jesus does as well when we hear the word mediator we You know, you probably think of a legal mediation. Anybody ever been involved in a legal mediation? I hope not, but many of us have. In a legal mediation, you have one party in this room, and then you have another party over in this room, and the mediator literally goes between with each party's demands, trying to bring them together into a covenant, basically into an agreement. The problem with using that as analogy for what Jesus has done is that the goal of our mediation system really is just to keep you out of court. Okay, most people don't leave a mediation ready to barbecue with each other the next day right but the goal of Jesus mediation is is to bring God and humanity together in such a way that the relationship is completely restored so when we come to prayer we don't we don't add, we don't come to Jesus saying Jesus could you go across the hall and tell the father you know this is what I need and then so you know your, your prayer maybe you're in your bedroom you're praying you tell jesus what you need and he goes and then you just wait for the answer and the father says okay if this is what prince wants okay well this is what i need from him then you know and back and forth you go until you reach some kind of agreement jesus is our mediator because he is both parties okay he, the son of god and the son of man brought together in one person it's it's more like jesus is the hallway if that makes sense So in John chapter 14, Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. That's talking about his role as a mediator. So it's appropriate to go back and reread verses 11 through 14 in light of this role where we see Jesus entering the very presence of God, verse 12, into the holy places, not with the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And because he's the way, because he is the hallway, we come to the Father in the same way. Okay, now when the original audience heard verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, their immediate thought would have been a man named Moses. Moses is the mediator in the Old Testament, the mediator, you know, par excellence. And in his covenant, in in the covenant that Moses brought, the message from God was, do not come near. Don't come up on the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain on pain of death. We read about this a little bit last week, verse eight. If you just glance up your page, verse eight, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way in is not yet open. That's the message of the old covenant. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Can I come up and see God? Not yet. Can I enter the holy places? No, not yet. Can I draw near to God? Not yet. But because Jesus, the mediator, comes by the means of his own blood under the new covenant, the invitation or the word from God is please come, come, come. So here's, here's your homework. You're going to get your homework in the middle of the sermon this week, okay? Here's your homework assignment. When you go to prayer, tonight, tomorrow, whatever, and I, I literally do this sometimes, okay? So I want you to do it too. When you go to prayer, I want you to imagine yourself entering Verse 12, the holy places. Okay, entering into the very presence of God. It's filled with angelic creatures where the holiness is so tremendous they hide their faces. I want you to imagine entering that place and I want you to imagine someone stopping you and asking you, what are you doing here? And I want you to say, I'm here because, of my, because Jesus is my mediator. I'm coming in him. I'm coming in Jesus. And, and he'll say, this is all happening in your head, which is fine, okay. <laughs> what right do you have to be here? Well, I'm coming by means of, of his perfect and precious blood. That's why I get to be here. And he'll stand aside and let you in because it's all happening in your head. It'll work, <laughs> trust me, okay. Okay. <laughs> So even even though we're talking about a mental exercise, we need to think biblically and theologically about what we're doing because it is awesome. The invitation that you've been given to enter the presence of God spiritually through and in Jesus and by means of his blood. Now, what is it about this new covenant in, in verse 15? Let's talk about that. Here's a little trivia for you this morning. When it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, in Latin, hmm, who wants to learn a little Latin this morning? In Latin, the word is testamentum. So older translations just say, Jesus is the mediator of a New Testament, okay? That's where the divisions of our Bible come from, Old Testament and New Testament. The two are one in their origin, God is the author of both, And in both of them, we're presented with one ultimate object of faith and one means of salvation, but the forms that these covenants take are very, very different, and we're going to talk about why that is. Hebrews just goes out of its way again and again and again to draw attention to how completely unearthly the new covenant is. Uh, So it's constantly drawing attention to the temporary, ineffective, fading, human, fleshly, earthliness of religion. And then on the other hand, the eternal, completely effective, final, indestructive, heavenly reality that Jesus has brought. And, the, and part of the contrast is that uh, in, the, in one of these covenants, there really is a lot to do. I don't know if you've thought about that before. How many many of you have read Exodus 17 through 30 recently? None of you, that's right, because it's so exhausting. How many of you have read Leviticus recently and really enjoyed the experience? No one, no one ever read Leviticus and thought, well that really, that is just wow, I'm loving this experience. No, (laughs) because it is exhausting. Just reading about everything that had to be done is exhausting. There's a tabernacle to build and clothes that had to be sown and animals to be kept and spotless lambs to be bred and sacrifices offered and festivals to be observed. And so and so, in the gospel, there's just the one thing, and that is the blood of Jesus. There's just this one thing to rest in and trust in and hope in the blood of Jesus Jesus, we sing together, Jesus has paid it all. No one ever sang that about a bull or a goat or another mediator. So there's a lot, in, in, in the covenant that Moses brought, there is a lot of human agency, human activity, and human strength. And if you're, a, you know, if you've read the Bible for a while, at some point you've got to ask yourself, Why? What is the point of all this? 1,500 years of bloody sacrifice and toil. What was the point? The point is to leave no doubt about your utter inability to make yourself right in your own strength. The point is to leave no doubt in your mind you need a Savior the Apostle Paul in Galatians said that the old covenant was a teacher. Its job was to bring you to Jesus understanding that you cannot fix your relationship with God on your own. And the book of Galatians also says, we still don't totally get that, okay, but the lesson is over. Okay, the The story is moving on. The gospel is powerfully moving ahead into all the nations. But for anyone still wondering, okay, anyone wondering if there's some other way to the Father, if there isn't something about earthly, fleshly religion that can get the job done, two-thirds of your Bible are here to tell you, no, it cannot. There is nothing that can address the human heart issue accept the blood of Jesus. William Cooper is an example. Even though he wasn't a Christian, lived with this tremendous sense of unworthiness and burden that all of humanity fills at some level. And the, the purpose of the Old Testament is to help you understand you're not gonna, you're not going to be in the relationship with the Father the way you want to apart from the blood of Jesus. In our reading today, the author's been making this argument from lesser to greater. If you look at verse 13, he says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer are enough to sanctify for the purification of the flesh, meaning the outside of you. okay? If the, if the blood of goats and bulls could make you clean on the outside, well then how much more will the blood of Jesus... Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish wash you on the inside we talked about this last week it's for that reason that he's the mediator verse 15 he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal or the promised eternal inheritance so it it just goes on to make this contrast that these deaths have taken place verses 16 and 17 is just saying covenants are testaments a, a last will and testament cannot be put in place without a death. And so that's what's happened in Jesus. And verses 18 through 22, if the old covenant required all of this blood just to make you clean on the outside, what do you think is going to be needed to make you clean on the inside? And it concludes in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what Hebrews teaches again and again and again. It's what all Scripture teaches. And it only makes sense if our sin is a bigger deal than we think and, that, and God is holier than we tend to think. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. This doctrine that we've been teaching about today I'm just going to teach it. I just want you to hear the word, okay? You don't need to remember this, but it's, it's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, okay? Substitutionary, meaning one person bears the punishment of another, and atonement, meaning to cover over sin. You put them together, and this is what all of Scripture teaches, that Jesus bore the punishment of our sin, died in our place so that we could be forgiven, okay? Now, th- this has fallen on hard times recently, because it's hard for modern people to see the need for this. We don't think much of our sin, and we don't really think much of God. And so we, it's hard for us to see why someone has to die for the things that I've done. Here's, here's just a snippet of, of what one, the way one person puts it. How can justice and mercy be achieved through an act of injustice? If God is just, how can an innocent person be punished? He's talking about Jesus there. How can Jesus be punished for your sin? I want to just offer one one observation from our scripture reading today. Three times in our scripture reading, it uses the word eternal, okay? Verse 12, the blood of Jesus has secured for us an eternal redemption, Verse 13, it was offered through the eternal spirit. And in verse 15, it secures for us an an eternal inheritance. There are other times throughout Hebrews that that this is talked about, but just here three times in our reading today. Now, when we think about eternal redemption, we think about, you know, Jesus has brought us into a a redemption that never ends, a salvation that's never going to end. We're gonna live forever, and that's true. But eternity moves in both directions, okay? And eternal redemption not only stretches forever into the future, but it stretches forever into the past. Our eternal redemption, the the work of Jesus does not just hang out there in the air. It's not plan C. Oh, geez, this whole thing with Adam didn't work out. Let's try Moses, oh, geez well, that didn't work out. Son, would you go down and take care of this? I'm going to kill you, by the way, but it'll be fine. That's not the way to imagine an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption rests on the unchanging foundation of an agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have agreed together to rescue and redeem creation and to do it in a way and to unfold that process in history in a way that we would be able to see mysteries at the heart of God. Mysteries about who God is and the purposes of the universe. Oh, the depth, the wisdom, and the riches of the knowledge of God, Paul says. All of our hope is rooted in the counsel of an eternal God whose purpose is not just to save you, but to do it in such a way that one day all of creation will see what the Son has done and close our mouths in awe and say, I had no idea. It is no use trying to pit a vindictive father against an innocent son we we have to see that the, that Jesus shed his blood in love this was not forced upon him but he went to the cross himself he is himself the sin hating sinner saving god and his his complicity in his own condemnation is one of the most glorious life changing truths in the universe to be reflected on, and to be loved, and to allow it to change us. From the beginning of Genesis all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God covered Adam and Eve in the skins of animals, to the sacrifice of a ram instead of Isaac, to the Passover lamb of Exodus, to the firstborn sons of Egypt, just sprinkling the Ark of the Covenant substitution is everywhere in the Old Testament. prepare I mean for thousands of years God has been whispering to his people my life for yours, my life for yours, my life for yours. And he has done it in love. The rest of William Cooper's story is really interesting. So he had this encounter with the living God, just reading about the blood of Jesus. And uh, he says it in a really super poetic way, because he's a poet, but he says, the son of righteousness broke in on my life, and then he goes on. And it changed him. He spent six more months in the asylum because he just wanted to be near this doctor. But when th- then he left, and his pastor, was a man named John Newton. John Newton, if you're familiar with his story, is the author of a hymn called Amazing Grace. Have you heard of Amazing Grace, or do you live under a rock? (laughs) Okay, good. That was his pastor. And together they wrote a hymn book, you know, together. I think Cooper had 86 hymns, and Newton had 130 or something like that. And the thing is that William Cooper, throughout his adult life, continued, Continued to wrestle with profoundly oppressive depression. Not in the same way, okay, but every 10 years in January, okay, so for those of you who hit the winter months and you are just, okay, you're in good company, every 10 years he would enter these debilitatingly dark periods of life. And John Newton would be there to minister to him. So what changed for William Cooper became a you know, whereas before he wasn't a follower of Jesus, it was just a struggle to believe, you know, that he was worth anything, etc. Et in his life as a follower of Jesus, he just struggled his whole life to really rest in the blood of Jesus, to trust what he was already confessing. Do you know what that what that's like? There's a a play, it's not very old, but a, a play based on actual events. What happened is that William Cooper uh, came to the end of his life around 65 years old, still wrestling with whether or not God loved him. And John Newton was with him when he died. And so in the play, you see John Newton ministering to William Cooper as he's dying saying, you can trust in the love of God. He is for you and he's drawing you And Cooper dies in despair. And in the play, the moment after Cooper dies, John Newton looks up to heaven and says, see, Cooper, I told you so. (laughs) The blood of Jesus is God's I told you so. If you are here today and you are just bored with Christianity, you need to reflect on the blood of Jesus. If you think about these things, you hear the songs and you are yawning inwardly, spend some time this week with contemplating, reflecting on the blood of Jesus. If you're here, and you, like Cooper, you walk around with this burdened sense of guilt, if you find yourself struggling to really believe, how could, a, how could a perfect, holy, and righteous God love me? You need to spend time contemplating the blood of Jesus this week. That's what we do when we come to communion. Every time that we come to communion, what part of what Scripture tells us to do when we come is to remember Jesus wants you to feast on the memory of what he's done for you. And that's what we're going to do now. Before we share uh, in this simple meal together, I wanna give you time just on your own to pray and to remember what God has done for you In the blood of Jesus, if you're here today and you find yourself in either one of those camps, you're either bored and Christianity strikes you as a silly thing, or you find yourself crushed under the weight of the knowledge of a holy God, tell him about that. Ask him to speak to you and ask him to minister to you right now. Would you just take a moment right now?